Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. We're two mothers with a total of seven kids ages 1 to 17 and two PhDs in English. I'm an assistant professor of English and a program director. And I'm an acquisitions editor for an academic press. In the 10 years that we've known each other and seen our families grow, we've often found it difficult to relate to our families what it's like to be an academic and to relate to our colleagues what it's like to have kids. So during this pandemic, we decided to start this podcast to counter our own isolation and hopefully connect with other parents in academia. Thanks so much for being here and lending us your ears for about the next hour. So, Judith, how have things been going since last week? I know you had some quarantine. I know that it was bitterly cold in your part of Michigan. How are things at your end of the world? That is correct. The quarantine was up. We completed that cycle. I think the last time we talked, it was like the first day back after that quarantine. And I was kind of eyeing the weather skeptically. And indeed, the Friday back of the first week was a snow day. We had, um, I don't know how much snow, but the public schools already canceled the night before in anticipation. And then the daycare also, they go by what the university does. And so they were also closed. So both of the kids were home that Friday, which was fun. Uh, At this point, it's not, I don't feel like it's such a daunting task anymore because we've done it so much. And so it was, you know, we had, we had a good day together. It was, it wasn't bad. Um, it is still super cold, um, not to sound like a broken record. And I know that some areas in the United States have it even colder than we do, but yeah, it's, um, it's very cold and I kind of really need that light at the end of the tunnel. And I keep checking my weather app and there is just like no temperatures above freezing, like on the horizon. And that makes it really difficult for me. Like I, as soon as I sort of can scroll to the bottom of that and know, you know, the non the above freezing temperatures are coming, it's a lot easier for me to handle. But right now it feels like we're really in the thick of a really long, cold spell that makes it even more difficult. My kids have a lot of energy and I know as all kids do. And so it's uh, it's been that's but that part has been a little rough, like adding the cold, the freezing cold onto, you know, the the fact that we don't that we can't go anywhere else for anything else either. So I don't know. How have you been doing with that? Same situation. Michigan, what is it? Like I get up and take my kids to school and it's nine degrees Fahrenheit. So (sighs) it's just chilly. I think you're definitely right. They do cancel outdoor recess when it gets this cold for our students here. So my children are not getting the activity they need. My son normally walks to and from school, which is great for his attitude, but it's just too cold to ask that of him. So I feel like we're all kind of getting that, uh, lethargic vibe going in our house. We just want to like snuggle under the covers. I don't know how great that is for anyone. So there's that. Um, I don't get snow days anymore. That's the one other kind of caveat, I suppose, of working exclusively from home. I used to like a snow day now and again myself, but I am not getting those obviously because it doesn't prevent my Wi-Fi from running a Zoom meeting. So that's something different. And in the meantime, there are some interesting current events that are definitely relevant to our podcast and the work that we do. Now, you you probably remember this, recall this, that back when Trump arrived at the White House four years ago, one of the first things he did was disband an office specifically focused on women's issues. This was just one of the many things that he did um, in 2016. But now that we have President Biden in the White House, he is resurrecting it. And Biden has actually promised that gender equity is going to be at the forefront of his admin's policies, which is awesome. And in order to achieve that, he even has uh, set forth creating a new gender policy council within the White House and even reformulating the former Obama administration's White House Council on Women and Girls. And so this is really awesome for everyone, not just women and girls, but I think this is important to the entire country. This working towards gender equality work to, quote, build the nation back better. So I think that's interesting. And here's a quote from President Biden. It says, quote, too many women are struggling to make ends meet and support their families, and too many are lying awake at night worried about their children's economic future, end quote. 
Um, He goes on to say, quote, this was true before the COVID-19 pandemic, but the current global public health crisis had made these burdens infinitely heavier for women all over this country, end quote. And that's certainly something that we have seen in headlines, and we're going to speak more to some of those specific headlines and articles that you have uncovered in the last couple of weeks. But this is something that this podcast has certainly been tracking since we started. It's something that most of our working women and mothers have noted. Judith, let's speak a little bit more today about the ideologies about maternity and motherhood pre-COVID, post-COVID. And this is certainly one of your areas of expertise. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. <laughs> well, yeah, I that's, uh, that's flattering that you would phrase it that way. It is certainly something that I tend to think a lot about. And, you know, we've covered over the last few uh, months here on the podcast a little bit how things have changed for mothers during the pandemic, what has become more difficult, what has become harder, Uh, generally speaking, what are some of the tasks that we're adding to the work that we were doing already before. But what I've recently started thinking about a little bit is how sort of the stories that we tell, that that we tell each other about mothering right now, and then also the stories that sort of different media outlets are telling about how mothers are doing right now. How does that impact what our expectations are and what the pressures are that we're, you know, putting on ourselves and that we feel other people are putting on us? And so what's interesting, I think, um, is that there were recently um, multiple, uh, multiple stories that I came across in the same week where both, uh, I don't know if you get Parents Magazine, it's just something that I subscribe to. I don't even know why, but it, you know, it's, I like getting a magazine in the mail every once in a while. And they tend to have interesting stories about, they tend to have interesting articles about like the different stages that kids go through. And so it just, I just like sort of having something land on my desk that gives me a, you know, a thing or two to think about. And so this, this week, they or this month, I just got it like a couple of days ago. They had they had a set of stories about um, what how mothers are doing with the pandemic and how things are sort of, you know, really starting to wear on us and all of the different things that we're doing at the same time and and all all those important sort of discussions in the article, and then on the front page the the main sort of the the main headline in the largest letters was the title of the magazine was like current mood resilience. And so I kind of started thinking about a little bit about, you know, what that means that that's sort of the takeaway um, that mothers are resilient, right? Like we're all struggling. We're all having a really hard time. And it's, and I, it's so important. There's, I think there's a lot to talk about here because I don't want to say that moms aren't resilient. And I don't want to say that like, it's not important to talk about how we're coping with all of these different um, challenges that we're facing. But I also have noted in myself sort of a difference in how I'm handling my kids over the last eight years, right? So like one, one example that comes to mind for me is just the set, the daycare, the question of daycare, And the fact that I have a 14-month-old now, and I'm in a situation where I've never really spent that much time with a 14-month-old, even though she's my third baby, because both of the older ones were in some kind of um, daycare situation. One was with family and one was in an actual sort of daycare center. And so I find myself in this situation where I'm kind of, you know, new to spending this much time with a 14-month-old. And also sort of thinking back and I've, I started like some guilt started creeping in about having sent my older ones to daycare. And so I had to kind of take a step back and, and really um, think about where that feeling of guilt is coming from and how these stories that I'm reading everywhere maybe have something to do with it. Right. So we see, um, all of these moms doing all of these different things that they're doing. And some of them are doing them gracefully, but part of the story is also that, you know, we're in our PJs and our hair is undone. And I don't know. So like, like the, the other sort of piece of the conversation is the New York times had a whole series of articles this week that were really great that were sort of like checking in with moms in the pandemic. And they had followed three women's for like, I don't know, three, four or five months. Um, and they had done a bunch of interviews and they had some pictures. And just one of the pictures that really stuck out to me was um, this one mother, like in the closet, 
with um, earphones in her ear that connected to her phone and then typing away on the laptop with the one arm. And then the other arm was sort of like trying to hand her the toddler that was next to her a crayon or something. And there was a book on the floor where the kid had colored, but now she was like hanging from the, you know, from the rail or from the piece where you hang your clothes. Like she was just climbing or doing some, some, something over there. And so I feel like those are the images that we're seeing now. And they've sort of replaced that image of the briefcase carrying sort of suit wearing mom with the cell phone that like walks in high heels with the kid next to her kind of thing. And I just was interested in thinking a little bit about how these images impact what we think motherhood looks like right now, maybe what it should look like right now and what makes a good mom, right? Is like handling all of these things and being resilient is that the new image of the good mom that we have in the pandemic or are there other ways to think about all of that? So I don't know. That was, I, you know, I unloaded a, a lot um, on you there. I don't know if you saw any of these stories, did you have any gut responses to any of what I just said or the stories if you saw them? Right. So that term resilience to me is a little bit tricky and worth unpacking because resilience suggests that we can do this. And part of my gut response is that, but should we? Is it okay to say we can't do it all? You know, always going back to that, I can have it all. Um, Maybe we can't have it all right now. And maybe that's worth critiquing a little bit because it is really difficult to try and do all these things all at once. And certainly because my children are a little bit older, as I mentioned to you, some of the pressure is off on me. My kids are mostly able to self-sustain, to kind of entertain each other, maybe get started on their homework. But if I had a 14-month-old, I think it would be really difficult for me to look around and see all this pressure like, oh, be resilient. I mean, I think it's okay in some senses to say, no, I'm not okay. And maybe I do need some help. Maybe I can't do this all. So that's a gut response right there. Um, I had the sense too that mothers have already been responsible for so very much. I mean, this idea that I was doing a lot of the child rearing, whether that's getting people dressed, getting school uniforms on, making the lunches, getting people to school, et cetera, et cetera. And then last year when we went to remote learning, it was like that was dumped on my lap as well. And that's okay, but it just added another pressure for me because now schoolwork is in the mix and now I'm not only... Uh, we'll say nagging, but maybe gently reminding people to clean their room, brush their teeth, take a shower. Now it's, you need to go into your Google Classroom. You need to make sure this assignment is done. So that really was hard for me. And I think there is this pressure. I felt this pressure. And again, is this internal or is this from external ideologies that have suggested this to me through those images you mentioned of the mom with the briefcase? Well, no, I'm this female professor with my attache case and my daughter's by my side, you know, trying to do it all. But when I was in grad school, I've already explained that I really felt this pressure to like really succeed and that I wasn't going to let my maternity compromise my work. And so I really did my my best all times to be on class early, to be engaged, to make sure I was done with all the readings. Because remember, I already had three kids when I was starting graduate school. So I already was a mother. I wasn't becoming a mother. I was. And I didn't want anyone to think that that somehow affected or impacted my work. And that was sustainable up until a certain point, right? And I think what's really important, what stuck out to me is that we all do have our own breaking points. And I think this is especially true of the pandemic conditions, right? That we can go so far, but we all just have that moment where like enough is enough. And that's really scary to me that it's resilience because that means it's not really allowing us to say, I need help, or maybe I need to talk to a counselor, or maybe this is too much, or maybe I need to see if my family or my partner or my friends can help out. Um, and I also was able to connect this with what my students are reporting. You did. I have a really neat night class. I guess neat isn't really really hip word. But anyway, I'm really enjoying the general vibe. It's a night class. It's one of our capstone courses. So the students are now like third and fourth year students. And the demographics for my school, I just got this report, were 75% female. I didn't know that, um, but it makes sense. It kind of like aligns with what I've noticed in my class. But in this particular night class, there are probably six or seven of my students that have young children. And I'm watching them and I'm like, you know what? I totally get it. But it's like they're trying to multitask and they're at home doing class, right? And this was really something that stuck out to me. 
was that it's so hard now to differentiate that this is time for class. Mom shouldn't be the one taking care of the baby right now. Mom shouldn't be the one fixing meals. And yet she is because she's at home. Now, this was really different from my time at graduate school. As I probably have mentioned, I would like leave two or three hours early for class, for night class, and just sit in the classroom. And it was just like almost like quiet, sacred space to me where I could just think and I could read and I could take notes. And that's why I was so prepared for class. But for these moms now that are going back to school sometimes as non-traditional students, there's a real challenge in setting boundaries because they're at home. They're not really being taken seriously, I don't think, by everyone in their family as this is my class time. And so I think that is really something that I saw a little bit of in these articles, but like there's not the boundaries and we need to make space to say this isn't normal. I hate that new normal phrase too. None of this yeah. is normal. We've talked about that, but I feel like in some ways this is just the pandemic is like going to be the carry all or catch all for like, let's just add another 20 things to mom's plate and say she's going to get through it because she's resilient. Does that seem a little negative or I, I mean, mean I think you you phrased a lot better. You brought it a lot more clearly to the point what my concern was about seeing the word resilience on the cover. I think you know you really I think you really nailed it. That's what the the downside of that term is. Like, yeah, you know, we are resilient and that's true, but is that necessarily something that's gonna be like the new uh or is that something that we want to be like the new ideal and the new standard of motherhood is that we like thrive or make it through despite it all. And, you know, now there's just this additional thing with, for like you said, for me with taking care of, you know, the, the 14 month old, or as you're observing with your students, you know, nursing and making them dinner and all these other things that like, oh, you know, all of a sudden it becomes this thing where it's like, oh, yeah, you can do all those things at the same time. Right. And I just am worried about um, especially, you know, what that does to new moms and what that does to to moms to maybe first time moms in the pandemic that have never like done it a different way. And that just, you know, their experiences that this is how things are and this is how you know this can be done or whatever because it is just you were talking earlier about how you wanted to make sure that nobody would think that your motherhood and somehow impacts your the quality of your work and i think that that's a sentiment that many of us share and but i also think that that's important at least for me it is, it's important for me to be able to do my best at my job without sort of having my motherhood impact that because that's really important for my self-esteem and it's really important for sort of like my feeling of self-worth. And it's very difficult to maintain that when you're constantly juggling too many things and you're not doing any of them well. And that is something that people have already, that that mothers have already reported before the pandemic, right? That was like the sense of, um, I'm, I'm doing so many things at the same time and nothing feels like it's ever done well and I feel like I'm shortchanging everyone. That was already a thing at an, before the pandemic when you know, the multitasking wasn't quite at the level that it is now. So that's sort of the the concern that I have and the worry that I have for myself and for other for other moms out there like me that might be, you know, really susceptible to some of these um, some of these narratives that we're some of these stories that we're seeing, some of these images that we're seeing, if that makes sense. Right. It's hard to ignore them. They're everywhere. And then this is normalizing this, I guess, would be another word as well. And I worry that post pandemic, when that lovely day comes, we'll still be sort of in the wreckage of all this and carrying these ideologies along with us like, oh, see, you did it. So now it's not the pandemic, so you can still keep doing that because now that that part of the world is over, but you prove that you can do all this great work. Exactly. But that's a little troubling yeah. because, like I said, to backtrack, it wasn't sustainable for me. You know, I got to a certain point with my dissertation writing and it 
became really difficult to try to think about things. I can read pretty well on autopilot and do kind of like some good sustained close readings, but to really think and to really put out my critical thoughts into the world in a coherent and organized way does take time, space, and solitude in some places. And that was not the case when I had four children at home. And I think at that time, you know, they were nine years and younger. So we had like nine six, three, an infant. So that was a challenge for me. And I'm ready to say that now, folks, I didn't want to admit it at the time, but I I think there it's obvious that would have to impact my working life in some way, shape or form. Um, Something I wanted to touch upon with you, because you are an expert, you don't need to be modest, you had that awesome dissertation about all the different ideologies about motherhood that you studied and have published really great work on past ideologies about motherhood. Can you explain to our listeners and maybe to kind of push this conversation a little bit forward, what were some of those past ideologies like before COVID and why were some of those maybe problematic or maybe useful in certain ways? That's an interesting question that you're asking about the use of them too. So that'll that'll be interesting to hear your perspective on too. So the one thing that we've noted or that scholars have noted was that over the course of the 20th century, motherhood ideology really sort of moved toward this um, really time-intensive, energy-intensive, and expensive model where it was specifically put on the mom to sort of spend all of this time and money in raising her kids. And the way that that we're seeing that in sort of the... in actual behaviors is that where moms or where more women entered the workforce between like the 70s and the 90s, and especially mothers entered the workforce, what we would expect is, you know, less time spent on their kids. But at the same time, these women also started spending more time on their kids. So there was, there's research that was done that basically had women record what they were, how many minutes they were spending each day and each, you know, each day of the week on what activities. And rather than, you know, seeing sort of a decrease in time spent with the children, developing the children's interest, all those kinds of things, right? That we see that as like the soccer mom, the carpooling, the the art classes, the, you know, all of these things that that sort of we're expected to do in order to give our kids like the best opportunity for development. Um, was actually added while they were also adding working hours. So we're already seeing sort of this um, this doubling of responsibilities, of professional responsibilities, really, where um, where women are working a full-time job and then child-rearing becomes more and more of a full-time job where it's less acceptable to just kind of let your kids roam and figure it out. And there's more expectation to enroll them in certain programs and, and, but then also to sort of, you know, engage with them more thoroughly and be more attuned to their needs and their emotions and all of these things. Right. And so that was, identified or that was labeled as the ideology of intensive mothering by Sharon Hayes. And this book came out in the 1990s. Uh, The book is actually called The Cultural Contradictions of Motherhood because she then also relates it to how these expectations that we have about what a good mother is are exactly contradictory to characteristics that we need to succeed in the you know, sort of like the capitalist um, environment and, and to make careers in in that area. So um, so that's so that was in the 1990s that this was identified. And I think at the same time, um, we see attachment parenting really becoming a more important ideology that a lot of mothers were more or less committed to. And attachment parenting, um, I think, has when I was a mom, that was like a really big thing. And maybe that was part of like the circles that I was in and the, you know, the area that I lived in and what, you know, what the women around me were doing. But that was something that really had a huge impact on me. And the, some of the, and, and the idea of attachment parenting is just, um, the main idea is just that, you know, mothers have this form, this like really, really close connection with their children. And some of the core components of attachment parenting are things like, um, 
skin to skin to skin right after birth, uh, extended breastfeeding on demand, co-sleeping. Um, those are, those are the kinds and no sleep training. Those are the kinds of things that are part of attachment parenting. And I know that there's a lot of conversation in Germany, because I hear that from my sister and my German friends about sort of like a needs oriented, um, child raising. And that's, I think what that is as, or that's, there's a, there's a strong correlation between that, right? The idea is that it's mom's job to really be um, connected to the child at all times and know what the, what the child needs. And the idea there is that what the child needs is a lot of contact with the primary caretaker. And of course the primary caretaker tends to be the mother in this sort of ideological construct. And so it puts a lot of um, pressure on the mother to always be near the child and to sort of put her own needs um, second. And I think this is really interesting because there's so much to talk about there too. In my, in my like Instagram feed and other, and like social media, I do see a lot of talk about having to put our own needs first as mothers, um, to be able to, you know, there's the idea of the oxygen mask, like you have to put your own oxygen mask on first before you can help anyone else and things like that. But I still feel at the same time that a lot of these ideas are still very compelling. And I think part of the reason that they're so compelling, and this is where I think, you know, it's important to have a nuanced conversation about this and not just sort of reject attachment parenting as like the mom completely disappears in this entire construct. What's so compelling about this, I think, for a lot of women is that it allowed mothers to really embrace their role as mothers. I think there was important there was an important step in sort of the development of feminism um, where women really rejected this idea of, you know, you're only a full woman if you're also a mother. And I think that that's, that continues to be true, right? You don't have to be a mother to be a complete woman. But if you, you know, but it still can be a really fulfilling role and a really fulfilling relationship with a small child, as you and I know, and as probably, you know, many of our listeners would agree with. And so um, I think there was also something really empowering in the idea of attachment parenting in that it allowed women to really sort of embrace that role and not feel like they had to reject motherhood altogether because that was like the feminist thing to do, if that makes sense. So I don't know um, if you, I know you said that, you know, it's been a little while since your kids were little do you remember engaging in any of these attachment parenting practices? And do you feel like sort of this ideological construct had a lot of um, uh, appeal to you? Well, it's really fascinating because as you sort of map this out, I'm thinking about the ebbs and flows and approaches to maternity. And I'm thinking about those mid-century discourses where moms were still mostly at home and they kind of applied that very structured schedule approach. No breastfeeding in many cases, right? Just feeding bottles on a strict two, four, six hour spectrum, right? And that was very strict. But when you think about it, that is probably less time with a baby. I'll talk about scheduling in a minute because that did not pan out for me. Then we flash forward to the 80s and 90s where more women are working. And I think there's an enormous pressure because I'll say it, we feel guilty sometimes. Wow, I am not doing what my mother did in the 70s or 80s. I am now at work and I need to really make up for it. So instead, I'm going to make sure that my child goes to ballet. She's going to go to a reading group. She's going to go to theater class. She's going to go to violin lessons. She's going to do this sport. And that becomes so, so burdensome, I think, for the parent and probably for the child as well. So I see the mother stretched really thin in that capacity, right? Because I would be curious to find out how that sort of is managed in families. Does that become part of the mom's responsibility to get the child around to those things? Or is it just like I said, we feel guilty sometimes. So we're going to do all these things with our kids after our work week is done. So there's that pressure. And then we jump cut to attachment theory, which yes, I would say by default, I became sort of a, an attachment parent. Um, and I felt like, although this is pretty intensive relating to time, I felt in many ways 
this particular set of practices was just easier for me. It was easier for me to just hold my baby and nurse it rather than hear it cry. Um, that was kind of a book I received with my first son was called the Ferberization or Ferber method of scheduling your child to sleep. And I tried it a little bit. And the idea was like, let the baby cry it out. And to me, that sound of an infant crying for an hour or two hours or three hours was just, I couldn't tolerate it. So it was just easier for me to pick up a nurse. And, you know, I guess maybe that just doesn't speak to my mindset. Um, So I felt like it was easier just to pick up a nurse when they wanted on demand. I guess that's part of attachment theory. First child, I did not do any co-sleeping, but second, third, and fourth, I did. I had something, it was called a snuggle nest. And I, I'm sure there are people that, you know, can tell us all about all the bad parts of co-sleeping, but I never had an issue with it. I'm such a light sleeper and it just made it so much easier for me to just have my child there, nurse on demand, again, roll back over and go to sleep. The child was in the middle and this little, it was like a little, it had a ledge. So it was kind of in the middle of the bed, but it had some boundaries. So like you wouldn't roll onto the child, but I just found that to be so much more conducive to a good night's sleep than getting up, walking to the room, turning on the light, walking downstairs, walking upstairs, all that kind of thing. So that to me though, I think there is positive and negatives to that, right? That on the one hand, so there was convenience, but it seemed like I was with the baby an awful lot. And in my fourth, with my fourth child, she just (laughs) needed me all the time. And she was the one that if I put her down, then she'd just scream. And I tried to see that cry it out. Uh, She cried, I think, one time for four hours straight. So I was just like, I can't do that. That's not good for anyone else's mental health, hearing that, thinking about it, and what is this accomplishing? So I think that's interesting now to flash forward to this pandemic, because that was already, she's seven, so that was a long time ago. But is there a way to work around? I mean, I feel like with a pandemic, it's all attachment now because (laughs) we are attached. We are all here. We're next to each other. We're with each other. If one's working from home and the child is there right next to them. So I feel like in some ways, attachment parenting is like the new norm. I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of like grossly like, you know, summarizing this and kind of like boiling it down to like this key point. But I feel like in some ways that has made this attachment theory more widespread because we can't like we can't have our own space because we're all here all day. I am like so sick of my house. You know, this is like my space. It's like, well, you can get crazy and creative, Erin, and go downstairs today, but you're still at home. So (laughs) I feel like, again, relating it back to the pandemic, it's just like, wow. I mean, it's so much more full on than what it was two or three years ago. So I did engage in some of those practices. Um, I think some of the pressure, again, was forced back on me with attachment therapy or therapy, attachment parenting. Freudian slip there, folks. Um, some of the <laughs> some of the pressure was really focused on me because I remember at the time, especially with my first child, you know, my partner would say, well, he doesn't want me. He just wants you. He wants to nurse. And that could be kind of frustrating because it seemed like then everything was in, in on me, all the pressure, all the child rearing, because, well, you're nursing. The baby doesn't take a bottle, so they just want you. And that felt to be, that, that could feel a little bit claustrophobic at times as well. So, you know, my baby days are over, but I'm wondering if you had kind of thought about that idea of like how these ideologies are playing out now in this pandemic world. Yeah, I think that they, I like the idea. I like the way that you're phrasing that as like, now we're all attached all the time. And I think that probably this is also an opportunity for, um, I know that like some families are doing a really good job of sharing some of that load a little bit better if, you know, the partner is also working from home. Um, I know I, I have some like anecdotal evidence in my circle of friends and acquaintances where that's the case. Those are not the stories that were being told though. So I don't know what that means. You know, I don't know what to make of that. I like one of the, if going back to the New York Times article, one of the f- women that they were watching, her husband was working from home, but she describes in like multiple scenarios that he goes into his office with his door closed and and then she sort of handles her job and the kid. And a lot of times, and we've mentioned this too, but like, you know, a lot of times it's just a very simple you know, one person makes the higher salary and so if you're going to risk losing a job, you're going to 
risk losing the, you know, the lower wage one or whatever. Um, So there are these like very pragmatic explanations. But I still also think that that probably oversimplifies and that that um, it doesn't that it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And so I think, you know, what you're what you're saying about, okay, like you're nursing, you're the one that has to do the nursing. Okay. But that holds true for the first like six to eight months, right? And only the nursing part. So like there, you know, like there are plenty of other things that a non-nursing parent can do, right? And so I think there's still a lot of opportunity, especially, like I said, if both parents are at home, um, where we can see a better sort of separation of those tasks and a better sharing of some of those responsibilities, that being said, I still, um, I don't know if like, if I think that like maybe women are more susceptible to sort of these ideologies, if we're still more, I like what you were saying earlier about, you know, the guilt that we're experiencing and that how that sort of maybe drives us more to um, making up for it somewhere else. I think that that's probably, you know, I, I think that there are probably very few fathers out there that are experiencing guilt for having a full-time job and that then sort of have to figure out or that then, you know, put in this extra time around, around that to sort of combat their own feelings of guilt. I think that that's probably a thing that women go through more. And so one thing that like I noticed for myself during the pandemic was just this idea of, you know, I mentioned this briefly earlier at the beginning of the conversation, how to really sort of entertain my 14 month old, how to keep her busy. What are some things that she can do? Um, those are things that I, in the past have, have relied on experts, right? Like I had, like I said, I had one kid in daycare. I had one kid with a family member who was a, basically a professional, she was a, she's a professional nanny. So she knows what she's doing too. And she doesn't have to think about how to keep a 14 month old busy. And for me, it feels like I'm really stepping outside of my, you know, list of qualifications here. Like this is not what I have a lot of experience or training in or anything like that. And I used to be perfectly comfortable relying on experts in that field. But now with um, COVID, you know, like there's a possibility, maybe there's a potential to, there are, it's not like there are no options for daycare, especially where we are, but there's just so much additional anxiety about, you know, actually sending the kid there. You know, she's not old enough to wear a mask and those kinds of things. And so I think that this is, I think that sort of making moms anxious about daycare was already sort of a has a long tradition in sort of in these ideological systems there's um i think if you're looking at the book the mommy myth i want to say there's a whole chapter on how the 80s in the 80s and 90s newspaper articles and magazines painted daycare centers as as these like awful places where terrible things happened and kids were dying and you know, abused and all of these horrible things. And that had a particular function in sort of creating anxiety in mothers to send their kids to daycare, right? And I feel like COVID is this like new thing, at least for me, it is, where it's like, okay, well, I can send my kid to daycare. But what if she gets COVID, then I'm just like this horrible mother that sent her child straight to her death or whatever, right? And so there's this, this whole other thing, where, like I said, I used to be perfectly comfortable relying on experts. And now there's this new set of anxieties surrounding that, that goes so far as to make me question my past decisions and my past judgment, which I have to take a step back and say, no, this is completely fine. And it was completely fine at the time and now might be a little bit different or whatever. But um, so I think, I think, you know, you're right in suggesting that those ideologies are intensifying during the pandemic. There's a lot of anxiety going around anyways. And I think anxiety really um, is a huge factor for me, at least in my being susceptible to some of these pressures and some of these images and ideologies that I see circulating. And I think, you know, one other thing that I want to, one other point that I want to make, you know, we talk about um, social media a lot. We mentioned social media on here and, and we all sort of have a very clear sense of like, you know, it's not good to compare yourself to others and things like that. 
But I recently have noticed just how, you know, how twisted it really is, especially so the only the only social media that I really use is Instagram. And so I kind of initially went there for help, right? Like I said, I have a 14 month old, how do I keep her busy? There's tons of resources on um, on Instagram. It's kind of like almost like the new Pinterest for me, where you know, people are posting activities with their kids. And so I found a couple pages that I really, really liked. And so I subscribe to them and that that way things will pop up in my feed. I like to just sort of, like I said with the magazine earlier, I like to just have things kind of pop up in my feed. They're automatically there. I can think about them. I can, you know, I can think about them more deeply. If they resonate with me, I can sort of just let them slide by the wayside if they don't resonate with me. And so I started following a couple of these accounts, but then Instagram knows what you like. And so then the algorithm kicks in and all of a sudden your feed is just full of all of these accounts where all of these mothers are doing all of these wonderful things with their children. All You know, there's one more beautifully curated activity after the other. And so then it becomes this thing where like I you get this like individually curated ideology because Instagram knows what you're going to respond to in that way and what's going to sort of get your attention and what you're going to look at. Um, And so that's something that's really worrisome to me, too, where, you know, the when we're talking about ideology that used to mainly be, you know, circulated through mass media, television, radio in the 20th century, newspaper magazines. I talked about those newspaper articles about the daycare centers. And now we just find these like individualized pieces that each of us gets their own version of something that's going to really compel you and really sort of put a lot of pressure on you to be the best mom that you can be, whatever that may mean in this current circumstance. So I don't know. I think that's just that's something that I've been thinking a lot about and that I have that I'm working at sort of trying to take a step back and being like, okay, this is useful to me and this is not useful to me. But I think that can be really difficult, especially like I said, with all of the anxiety that's going around. Um, What do you think? (laughs) It makes me happy that I wasn't on Instagram when I had babies, I guess, because I want to let you off the hook. I want to let all of our mothers of young infants and toddlers off the hook. Like you are an expert. Okay. It's your child, not to sound really attachment theory hippie, but you are an expert. You know what to do. I mean, I was sort of thinking about what I did and I have to preface this with like, I never worked full time when I did have any of my um, kids, you know, when they were young like that, it was either I was either the GTA or I told you had a job where I worked 15 hours a week. So, but what I do remember doing is like having a playpen and putting some soft, smushy toys in there and being like, okay, and there's a board book. And that is not any curated Instagram (laughs) expert stuff. I was just like, that's kind of what I remember doing at that age. You know, my mom had one of those little Fisher Price activity, uh, boards. I'm going to really date myself. It was like this very 70s toy and it had some things you could beep and push. And I thought that, I thought that was great. I still remember that thing actually. So (laughs) I I think you are an expert. I think that that's the trouble with these ideologies is that they're making some people feel like they're not. And they are, it's like the baby is going to be okay. You know, I think everyone's doing really well in spite of things, but it can be really troubling to see all of those different moments and, you know, you have to be doing this or you should be doing this or you haven't done that. And is your baby meeting this milestone? And that can get really frustrating. And I was even thinking back, you mentioned those newspaper articles. My time at school, I remember it was the quote latchkey generation and like latchkey was so bad. And I think that's a pretty American term, but latchkey is just, you know, the after school program that, you know, kids could hang out after school for a few hours, like until five or six. So if mom or dad got off work, then they pick them up. And I remember that was just like almost like a dirty word, like, oh, the latchkey generation. Oh my gosh, they have to go home. And sometimes, you know, a child might have to turn on the oven and make the dinner my gosh, you know, my goodness. Um, but really, in some ways, there is there is like those kids learn to be probably pretty independent and do things on their own. And we had latchkey programs at my children's school. And I thought it was great because it was still structured. There were still teachers there and people to help them kind of get their homework done. And I loved it because I'd come pick them up at five or six and they'd be done with their homework. They got some playtime. They usually did some recess. I thought it was awesome. But I remember growing up and that was like, 
oh, the latchkey generation, what's going to become of them? Oh my goodness. And I bet most of those folks that did do latchkey, I don't know if we have any listeners that are closer to my age, but I bet that that created a good sense of independence and being able to have, you know, some responsibility at a bit of an early age. But with those Instagram feeds, yeah, I have to say I only got Instagram probably five years ago. And by that time, my youngest was already a tot. So I don't subscribe to many of those. Mostly what I'm getting is like Star Trek stuff, which is another whole kind of weird. (laughs) But I mean, I think I think it sounds like you're heading in the right direction. I think this could be useful for any folks. And, you know, we mentioned this before. It's like people are aware that this is all kind of fake and phony and curated and that it's only showing. I think you made this point a few months ago here, but like people are only showing the one good takeaway. We don't know what the rest of their life is like, you know, so we have to be careful of those. And it's just a new form of the same thing that's been happening for centuries, right? You know, the angel of the house ideology and then the kind of Victorian mother. And I mean, it's just the same thing, but now it's like so accelerated where, you know, maybe you saw an article in the newspaper once a week. This is like, how many of those do you get in a day? Do you think 20, 30? Oh my goodness. How overwhelming, you know? Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And like I said, you know, Instagram picks up on it. So like, you know, I have like a couple accounts that I really like. And then as soon as I get to sort of like the part where I've seen every every post by my friends, I get like 20 to 50 before, you know, depending on how long it takes me to, to actually get out of there. Um, you know, you get a whole slew of other activities and little quotes, you know, and all this all this stuff that gives you something to think about, but also makes you feel like, you know, maybe you're, you're missing something. So definitely, I don't know. It's definitely something, like I said, like I might be more susceptible to this than other women, but I'm sure that there are also at the same time, we have some listeners out there that maybe, you know, are susceptible like me to some of these things. And so maybe this was um, a helpful conversation to have and give, you know, everybody something to think about in terms of what the stories are that we're telling us or ourselves as a culture about how mothers are handling this pandemic. And like you said, I think it'll be interesting to kind of see how moving forward, what of this will remain, right? What will it mean in a couple of years Um, that mothers are resilient? Are we going to be feeling comfortable again about accepting that expert support and about accepting help? Or are we going to end up with a version of motherhood where like, you know, to be a good mom means to be doing everything all at the same time um, with, you know, with a smile or not a smile or whatever. But um, I think that's, you know, I think, I think that's part of it even maybe is that part of the story is that, you know, we are exhausted and we are, you know, tired and whatnot. And we're still, we're still getting up every day and doing it anyways. And so I think, and that's, and that's what we're going to keep doing. And that's what we have to do. But it's just, is that the story that we want to continue to tell ourselves? Or are we going to be able in two to five years to look back at the pandemic and say, wow, that was really amazing. We're glad that that's done and that we've moved on to a better, you know, a, a more supported version of what it means to be a mom. So with all these articles out there and the New York Times series of articles you mentioned and the parents article, it is calling attention to the difficulties, I think, which is really important. It is sort of mapping out for people that are outside of the parenting circles, like what a day in the life of can look like for us. So that's kind of a positive takeaway. Is there anything else that you could kind of take away from this that might be sort of heading in a more positive trajectory as far as feminism, as far as maternity and the workforce? Are there any other things that we can think might be good that come from this? I think that the fact that we are still here and we are still doing it and there is hope that is, you know, part of an important story and that is part of a way to to move forward right and that's i think that's the best that i can come up with in this context i don't know um how you feel about that but they're their women are continuing to do what they do and they always have and i think another part of this to to keep in mind is that at least for the stories that we're seeing online where this where this resilience narrative works is that the the women that they're portraying in these stories haven't, they're still working and it's all still working. And so um, I think for anybody out there that has 
lost their jobs already. I think this is a very different story and a very different situation. And that's something important to keep in mind too, that we haven't really touched on today. Um, so I don't know how much of a positive tweak that is at the end. Um, but I, I, I have a hard time to be quite honest with, with finding the positives in this. What, what do you think? Right. I mean, one thing that you had mentioned and just to jump back on that is that it is the idea that perhaps women today are able to embrace motherhood in a way that earlier feminists didn't want to or weren't able to. We don't necessarily have to be heterosexual women to be mothers. I think that's really important to note. And I've even explained my own mom kind of felt alienated by the second wave of feminism because she felt like she wanted to be a homemaker and a mother. And she felt like she was sort of feeling opposed to or like what she did was not important as portrayed by the feminist movement. Now, I don't think that's necessarily true, but that was her interpretation of it, right? That she felt like because she stayed at home, feminists looked down upon her or something like that. So I think that that is worth noting that maybe we are able to embrace our maternity and still be feminists. Um, it can, we could suggest that maybe it does undermine some of the progress towards equality that was previously made. But I think like what you just mentioned is it's important we're kind of framing this from this like very middle class point of view, which is that, you know, not everyone has kept their job and not everyone has that opportunity to work from home. I have also read reports where it's not just that childcare is an issue, that it's like not affordable for some folks. If you look to our minimum wage, that is still not even where there's this big push to like make $15 an hour the minimum wage. And I can't really do a good conversion, a currency conversion, but that's not much. That $15 an hour isn't sustainable. It's not enough to support a family. So in many cases, we've had women who had to make the decision like if they do, do still work, they can't afford the child care. It's not available. So are they going to leave young children at home with maybe a slightly older child? I mean, some of that is really troubling. And then we're forced to rely upon family members for child care. So some of these considerations, I think, are worth noting. It's we're kind of looking at this from a point of view where we have two parents working. But what about the cases when that's not working? You know, so we don't all always have the option of hiring childcare. Some of us don't have the option of working from home, right? There's many careers where essential workers have to be on the job. So that's kind of important as well. So I think all of that needs to be considered when we're thinking about um, feminism and maternity and class and race. I think that's all, those are all kind of like important considerations as well. So I don't know that I'm asking, answering your question. I think I'm actually asking more, but just to say that this all sort of warrants that critical eye as well. Yeah. And I think this episode for me was a little bit, maybe was a little bit more about asking questions than making statements. Um, even though I did go into quite a few, um, rants over the course of the last hour, but I do think that I, I would be interested in hearing from our listeners about how they feel about some of these things. I would love to hear from some of you about where you see these stories circulating, what some of the narratives are that are popping up in your feeds or that are, you know, that you're noticing in your newspaper mag or magazines or whatever that you read. And how has your own perspective maybe changed if you've been a parent, you know, for a little while and were a parent before the pandemic? How have your views changed on this? What are some things that are making you anxious? or hopeful. Uh, I really would love some feedback on this episode to hear from everyone how, you know, you're working your way through the pandemic in terms of thinking about your own experience of being a mother and the expectations that you feel others are placing on you and maybe that you're placing on yourself. So if you want to get in touch with us and you want to share some of your experiences, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at phdinparentingpodcast at gmail.com. And we can also have a more open conversation with everybody on ironically instagram uh we're on instagram at phd and parenting and you so you can find us there um we'd love to hear from you absolutely i would love to increase the conversation here and hear about everyone's experiences as they navigate this particularly challenging time in the world so thanks again for listening we look forward to continuing the conversation